239, Chapter 19 of Dracula. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 239, Where My Kids At? This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more by visiting www.knitcircus.com. Also, Cool for Cats, the new novel by Andrew C. Ordover. You can get it at amazon.com or find out more from the link in the show notes. Also, don't forget, you can now access Craftlet via Stitcher Radio, the free application that allows you to listen to all of the audio that you love. Lots of NPR on there, lots of good stuff. Uh, when you download Stitcher, please don't forget, when you activate the app, at across the top, it's going to have a little bar that says... Where did you hear about us from? You click on that and tell them Craftlet. That lets them know how many people are coming to them through me, and that makes everybody happy. And that app, Stitcher, is available on pretty much every platform out there, with the possible exception of Palm Pilot, which I know somebody still has, but but not me anymore. It's been a while. Well, our December incentive needs to be announced, and that would be the incentive of the patterns from Julia Temiseva, who is one of the designers for Woten Management Farge Knit Volume 2, and uh, a lovely human being who I've been corresponding with now for quite some time. Julia will be putting into the Ravelry Library of Heidi, who donated in December. Congratulations, Heidi the very splendid and worthwhile patterns that she designed and has donated as part of the December incentive. So congratulations. And we will be getting in touch with you, Heidi, to get your Ravelry information so that Julia can put the patterns into your Ravelry inbox. So congratulations and uh, uh, onward to apologies. Apologies, huge ones, for not getting a podcast out. I want to make something very clear. While... (laughs) While Apple's iCloud did, in fact, break my account, truly, it is so complicated what has happened that the chances of this happening to you are beyond conceivable. I, I don't have email through my Mac account, and anything connected with my Mac email account isn't working. It's frozen in time and space as of January 9th. I have spent more hours with tech support than I have with my children for the last two weeks. And it's appalling. So that's just my disclaimer. I am not dissing Mac. I am not dissing the cloud. I am very frustrated, as anyone would be. But, uh, but it's really hard to pin blame on this one because it was such an epic fail uh, that is probably not replicable there you know if if it was something that you could do and you could trip it up yourself and therefore you could break the cloud for you yourself i would warn you but you can't you couldn't possibly do this so enough on that uh the other apology though is that i do have lots of audio for you today i did another interview with uh the wonderful woman um sally who who designed knit companion which if you have an ipad is a must-have for you who are knitters. Now, this won't work on any other platform right now, and you'll hear why in the interview, but I'm not editing that audio for this week. I'm going to have to save it for next week, and I apologize to Sally Holt for that because I really, really wanted to put it out with this this episode, but there aren't enough hours in the day. And in fact, the whole name of this podcast, Where are My Kids At? If you saw any of the old Swagger Wagon ads, the Toyota Swagger Wagon, I'll see if I can find the first one that has the line, Where are My Kids At? And, and post that on the show notes. But if you, if you did see that, uh, <laughs> that's what's happened right now. I actually, in fact, in order to podcast at all before next week wraps up, I had to drop my kids off at a friend's house. And, uh, and she's She's just a very wonderful and understanding person who also has two boys. So thing one and thing two are now with thing three and thing four, and they are having a marvelous time 
in the basement playing with a Wii, I believe. And, uh, and Thing 2 just had his birthday. He just turned eight. And our wonderful listener and reader of text, Arlen, in Montana, he helped me hook my son up with a kilt. Because what did Thing 2 ask for for his birthday? He wanted a kilt. And Arlen found a particular tartan that uh, Jewish boys wore in, and wear in Scotland. So my little boy is wearing his kilt today. And we got his sporin on, and he just looks so marvelous. He really has the legs for it, is what it comes down to. He can really pull this thing off. And he looks adorable. And, of course, he'll get jumped if he wears it to school, but <laughs> that's a different problem. Now, I got to see quite a few people at Vogue Knitting Live, and I got to meet an enormous cross-section of people who have, A, never heard of a podcast, and B, you're going to have to sit down, knitters, please, steal yourselves for this an enormous number of people who have never heard of ravelry right i know so you know at this point it seems so ubiquitous it's like oh and of course you're on ravel theory because you're a knitter no no in fact uh young and old rich and poor there was uh, an enormous cross-section of knitters with no ravelry experience whatsoever and i'm flabbergasted as I'm sure are you. Now, for those of you who are not knitters, if you have communities that are similar, I think I remember hearing one for quilters. Is this correct? If you are of that persuasion, please post the link in the show notes. Very important. And, oh my gosh, another apology. I have not been getting pings in my email telling me when people have commented. I've had to go and check the comments myself, and sometimes I don't have time to do it, and I certainly don't do it regularly enough. I found all of those emails. They had been shuffled off to a junk folder for reasons that still baffle me. So I've fixed that problem. So now I will know when you comment, and I will be able to respond to questions more appropriately and in a more timely fashion. So I'm feeling horrible about that, and also feeling pretty good, because... I finally found the answer to the problem. So Vogue Knitting Live, marvelous. Uh, I got to see shop owners from all over. There's a yarn crawl in Rhode Island that I might be able to get to. There are other teaching opportunities all over the country. Uh, I will be teaching in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in September. I already knew about that. And there's another gig I will be doing in Northern Virginia. I don't have dates for that yet. Uh, lots and lots of exciting stuff. So far more chances of me being in your neck of the woods in the U.S. Uh, than there used to be. I also will be uploading a new PDF with teaching information, the classes that I can teach. And I'll have that available on the Craftlet site and also on my Crafting a Life site, which is kind of the hub for everything. It's crafting-a-life.com. Dot com and from that site you can get to anything else that I do it all it all kind of the spokes of the wheel come off of that site as it were so this week I am very excited to be able to start talking about Dracula now I'm very excited but I'm also very sad because one of the other things that was very complicated about getting the audio out this sometime within the last two weeks was our Jonathan Harker, who I've told you before has been ill. He actually spent much of the Christmas holidays in the hospital and did have rather significant surgery. And of course, because the problem was solved, he is feeling much better, but he just had major abdominal surgery. So any of us who've had a C-section know how hard it is to recover from that, this would only be worse, is all I'm saying. He wanted me very specifically to tell you that all of the kind words that you sent to him while he has been ill have done so much to help him in his recovery. You know, whether you believe in positive vibes or good wishes or love or prayer or whatever, there is no question but that knowing that there are people out there who care whether you live or die actually does have a positive effect on your health. And I wanted to send out a special thank you from me to all of you for proving once again that Craftlet listeners are just simply better. 
I know many of you have written to him, and I will make sure to put his email address linkable on the show notes for this episode. Um, it means a lot. It, it means a lot. It has meant a lot, and it will continue to mean a lot because you guys are just fabulous. And even if you are not listening to this in real time, drop him a line if you like his reading. I can tell you because I, I have to, um, he was unable to edit. He was able to record but not edit the audio for this chapter. And that's one of the things that's taken so long was was me getting in there and, and editing. Because for any of you who've recorded at all, you know that you stumble and you have to swallow at some point. And sometimes you say the things wrong and then you swear and then you have to re-record. And, you know, this is normal stuff. Well, I have the raw files and that is the reason why I wasn't able to put any other audio out this week is because I, I'm editing for for Jonathan this week, which is truly a labor of love. Listening to someone find a way to, just as Aaron Ziegler has been doing, to embody the voices of so many characters and to do it for free for us, it's, it's huge. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm very proud to, to be able to offer the audio for this week. Now, this week's chapter, chapter 19, is really quite extraordinary. You hear in this chapter, you hear from Jonathan, Seward, and Mina. And just like last week, really affected quite a lot of you, or two weeks ago, really affected quite a few of you in chapters 17 and 18, where where the big mistake happens. Uh, The comments on the show notes imply what I think I agree with too, which is that Stoker knows exactly what he's doing, and, and he did mean this to be a mistake keeping Mina out of it is a mistake. Aaron Ziegler, who I got to see when we were up at Vogue Knitting, Aaron Ziegler has a theory, which I am very comfortable with, and that is that when Lucy died, the life went out of Seward. And so we're, we're seeing him kind of waffling and being wishy-washy and, you know, saying, oh, you know, Mina, you're great. It's so good to have you here. Look, we never would have done this without you. Van Helsing coming up and saying, oh, Madame Mina cannot be involved anymore. I absolutely agree. You know, he just turns on a dime. He's just, he's lost his mooring. You know, he's, he's a ship without a rudder. And, uh, and the loss of Lucy really affected him more than he could have or we could have anticipated. And this, this whole Dracula experience has almost made me want to just stick to epistolary novels where we have different voices for the different characters and just call it a day because clearly this is so wonderfully dramatized in the voices that we have we have today. So we have, uh, we have John Skulls from Fagnet. We have Aaron Ziegler from Chopbard. Ooh, and Chopbard is on Stitcher Radio now too. We have Aaron Ziegler from Chopbard. And then we have Elizabeth Klett who is... Uh, just monstrously good at recording audiobooks for LibriVox and iambics.com. Huh. I can't believe I remember that. And then, you know, you add on top of that the fact that each of them wind up having to imitate the other. <laughs> it's a challenge. Uh, and they've risen to the occasion marvelously well. And that really comes barreling home at you in this chapter. We start with Jonathan. And of course, this is a very interesting moment in Jonathan's life because the wife who he loves and the wife who he trusts and the wife who now knows all of his story, his secrets about what happened in Transylvania, he now has to leave her out of the loop. And she's been a safety for him. She's been incredibly important as far as his recovery goes. And now she's not going to know what's going on. And then we have Seward, who, as we just said, is is kind of adrift. And we had that that so sad scene uh, with Renfield at the end of, of last last chapter, where you know he's pleading, pleading, and and so sane and so sad. And then we have poor Mina, who is left with you know zero recourse in trying to rectify this situation where she's being restrained from participating in what she should be participating in, and her narrative this week is absolutely crucial and it's going to make you squirm and it's going to make you angry because you're going to see what's happening and that's exactly what Bram Stoker wanted you to do. So, 
couple of things just to make sure you know before we head into the chapter. Uh, you will hear in Jonathan's portion him quoting Van Helsing. And Van Helsing says, as he walks out a door, in manus tuus domine, which is the beginning of a Catholic prayer in the Latin version, in manus tuus domine commendo spiritum meum, which you can probably tell is, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Which seems about the right thing to say at this point, because they are, as we can kind of tell, flying by the seat of their pants. And at this point, we can be fairly certain that Van Helsing knows more than everybody else, but not all that much, because he's already made some pretty major mistakes. And in fact, keep, keep your ears out <laughs> for how he arms the men and I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, I will catch you on the flip side because there's some stuff that I don't want to spoil for you, but that is very important and that we should make sure we note. And, uh, and with that, I'm going to hand you over to the capable voice of John Scholes as he reads the beginning of chapter 19 for us, Jonathan Harker's Journal. Chapter 19, Jonathan Harker's Journal. 1st of October, 5 a.m. I went with the party to the search with an easy mind, for I think I never saw Mina so absolutely strong and well. I am so glad that she consented to hold back and let us men do the work. Somehow, it was a dread to me that she was in this fearful business at all, but now that her work is done, and that it is due to her energy and brains and foresight that the whole story is put together in such a way that every point tells, she may well feel that her part is finished and that she can henceforth leave the rest to us. We were, I think, all a little upset by the scene with Mr. Renfield. When we came away from his room, we were silent till we got back to the study. Then Mr. Morris said to Dr. Seward, Say, Jack, if that man wasn't attempting a bluff, he's about the sanest lunatic I ever saw. I'm not sure, but I believe that he's got some serious purpose, and if he had, it was pretty rough on him not to get a chance. Lord Godalming and I were silent, but Van Helsing added, Friend John, you know more of lunatics than I do, and I'm glad of it, for I fear that if it had been me to decide, I would before that last hysterical outburst have given him free. But we live and learn, and in our present task we must take no chance, as my friend Quincy would say. All is best as they are. Dr. Seward seemed to answer them both in a dreamy kind of way. I don't know, but that I agree with you. If that man had been an ordinary lunatic, I would have taken my chance of trusting him, but he seems so mixed up with the Count in an indexy kind of way that I am afraid of doing anything wrong by helping his fads. I can't forget how he prayed with almost equal fervor for a cat, and then tried to tear my throat out with his teeth. Besides, he called the Count Lord and Master, and he may want to get out to help him in some diabolical way. That horrid thing has the wolves and the rats and his own kind to help him, so I suppose he isn't above trying to use a respectable lunatic. He certainly did seem earnest, though. I only hope we have done what is best. These things, in conjunction with the work we have in hand, help unnerve a man. The professor stepped over and, laying a hand on his shoulder, said in a grave, kindly way, Friend John, have no fear. We are trying to do our duty in a very sad and terrible case. We can only do as we deem best. What else do we have to hope for except for the pity of God? Lord Godalming had slipped away for a few minutes, but now he returned. He held up a little silver whistle as he remarked, That old place may be full of rats, and if so, I've got an antidote on call. Having pressed the wall, we took our way to the house, taking care to keep in the shadows of the trees on the lawn when the moonlight shone out. When we got to the porch, the professor opened his bag and took out a lot of things which he laid on the step, sorting them into four little groups, evidently one for each. Then he spoke. My friends, we are going into a terrible danger and we need arms of many kinds. Our enemy is not merely spiritual. Remember that he has the strength of twenty men and that through our necks or our windpipes are of the common kind and therefore breakable or crushable. He is not amenable to mere strength. A stronger man, or a body of men more strong in all than him, can at certain times hold him. But yet they cannot hurt him as we can be hurt by him. We must therefore guard ourselves from his touch. Keep this near your heart. 
As he spoke, he lifted a little silver crucifix and held it out to me, I being nearest to him. Put these flowers around your neck. Here he handed me a wreath of withered garlic blossoms. For other enemies more mundane, this revolver and this knife, and for aid in all these so small electric lamps which you can fasten to your breast, and for all, and above all, at the last, this, which we must not desecrate needless. This was a portion of sacred wafer, which he put in an envelope and handed to me. Each of the others was similarly equipped. Now, he said, friend John, where are the skeleton keys? If so that we can open the door, we need not break house by the window, as before at Miss Lucy's. Dr. Seward tried one or two skeleton keys, his mechanical dexterity as a surgeon standing him in good stead. Presently he got one to suit. After a little play backward and forward, the bolt yielded, and with a rusty clang shot back. We pressed on the door. The rusty hinges creaked, and it slowly opened. It was startlingly like the image conveyed to me in Dr. Seward's diary of the opening of Miss Westenra's tomb. I fancied that the same idea seemed to strike the others, for with one accord they shrank back. The professor was the first to move forward and stepped into the open door. In manuas tuas domine, he said, crossing himself as he passed over the threshold. We closed the door behind us, lest, when we should have lit our lamps, we might possibly attract attention from the road. The professor carefully tried the lock, in case we might not be able to open it from within, should we be in a hurry to make our exit. Then we all lit our lamps and proceeded on our search. The light from the tiny lamps fell in all sorts of odd forms, as the rays crossed each other, or the opacity of our bodies threw great shadows. I could not for my life get away from the feeling that there was someone else amongst us. I suppose it was the recollection, so powerfully brought home to me by the grim surroundings, of that terrible experience in Transylvania. I think the feeling was common to us all, for I noticed that the others kept looking over their shoulders at every sound and every new shadow, just as I felt myself doing. The whole place was thick with dust. The floor was seemingly inches deep except where there were recent footsteps, in which, on holding down my lamp, I could see the marks of hobnails where the dust was caked. The walls were fluffy and heavy with dust, and in the corners were masses of spiders' webs, whereon the dust had gathered till they looked like old tattered rags as the weight had torn them partly down. On a table in the hall was a great bunch of keys with a time-yellowed label on each, they had been used several times, for on the table were several similar rents in the blankets of dust, like that exposed when the professor lifted the keys. He turned to me and said, You know this place, Jonathan. You have copied maps of it, and you know at least more than we do. Which is the way to the chapel? I had an idea of its direction, though on my former visit I had not been able to get admission to it. So I led the way, and after a few wrong turnings found myself opposite a low, arched oaken door ribbed with iron bands. "'This is the spot,' said the professor, as he turned his lamp on a small map of the house, copied from the file of my original correspondence regarding the purchase. With a little trouble we found the key on the bunch and opened the door. We were prepared for some unpleasantness, for as we were opening the door a faint malodorous air seemed to exhale through the gaps, but none of us ever expected such an odour as we encountered. None of the others had met the Count at all at close quarters, and when I had seen him he was either in the fasting stage of his existence in his rooms, or, when he was glutted with fresh blood, in a ruined building open to the air. But here the place was small and close, and the long disuse had made the air stagnant and foul. There was an earthly smell, as of some dry miasma, which came through the fouler air, but as to the odour itself, how shall I describe it? It was not alone that it was composed of all the ills of morality and with the pungent, acrid smell of blood, but it seemed as though corruption had become itself corrupt. Fah! It sickens me to think of it. Every breath exhaled by that monster seemed to have clung to the place and intensified its loathsomeness. Under ordinary circumstance, such a stench would have brought our enterprise to an end. 
But this was no ordinary case, and the high and terrible purpose in which we were involved gave us strength which rove above merely physical considerations. After the involuntary shrinking consequent on the first nauseous whiff, we one and all set about our work as though that loathsome place were a garden of roses. We made an accurate examination of the place, the professor saying as we began, The first thing is to see how many of the boxes are left. We must then examine every hole and corner and cranny, and see if we cannot get some clues to what has become of the rest. A glance was sufficient to show how many remained, for the great earth chests were bulky and there was no mistaking them. There were only twenty-nine left out of the fifty. Once I got a fright, for seeing Lord Godalming suddenly turn and look out of the vaulted door into the dark passage beyond, I looked too, and for an instant my heart stood still. Somewhere looking out from the shadow I seemed to see the highlights of the Count's evil face, the ridge of the nose, the red eyes, the red lips, the awful pallor. It was only for a moment, for as Lord Godalming said, I thought I saw a face, but it was only the shadows, and resumed his inquiry. I turned my lamp in the direction and stepped into the passage. There was no sign of anyone, and as there were no corners, no doors, no aperture of any kind, but only the solid walls of the passage, there could be no hiding place even for him. I took it that fear had helped imagination, and said nothing. A few minutes later I saw Morris step suddenly back from a corner which he was examining. We all followed his movements with our eyes, for undoubtedly some nervousness was growing on us, and we saw a whole mass of phosphorescence which twinkled like stars. We all instinctively drew back. The whole place was becoming alive with rats. For a moment or two we stood appalled, all save Lord Godalming, who was seemingly prepared for such an emergency. Rushing over to the great iron-bound oaken door which Dr. Seward had described from the outside, and which I had seen myself, he turned the key in the lock, drew the huge bolts and swung the door open. Then, taking his little silver whistle from his pocket, he blew a low, shrill call. It was answered from behind Dr. Seward's house by the yelping of dogs, and after about a minute, three terriers came dashing around the corner of the house. Unconsciously, we had all moved towards the door, and as we moved, I noticed that the dust had been much disturbed. The boxes which had been taken out had been brought this way, but even in the minute that had elapsed, the number of the rats had vastly increased. They seemed to swarm all over the place all at once, till the lamplight shining on their moving dark bodies and glittering baleful eyes made the place look like a bank of earth set with fireflies. The dogs dashed on, but at the threshold suddenly stopped and snarled, and then simultaneously lifting their noses began to howl in most lugubrious fashion. The rats were multiplying in thousands, and we moved out. Lord Godalming lifted one of the dogs and carried him in, placing him on the floor. The instant his feet touched the ground, he seemed to recover his courage and rushed at his natural enemies. They fled before him so fast that before he had shaken the life out of a score, the other dogs who had by now been lifted in the same manner had but small prey ere the old mass had vanished. With their going it seemed as if some evil presence had departed, for the dogs frisked about and barked merrily as they made sudden darts at their prostrate foes, and turned them over and over and tossed them in the air with vicious shakes. We all seemed to find our spirits rise. Whether it was the purifying of the deadly atmosphere by the opening of the chapel door, or the relief which we experienced by finding ourselves in the open I know not, but most certainly the shadow of dread seemed to slip from us like a robe, and the occasion of our coming lost something of its grim significance, though we did not slacken a whit in our resolution. We closed the outer door and barred and locked it, and bringing the dogs with us began our search of the house. We found nothing throughout except dust in extraordinary proportions, and all untouched save for our own footsteps which I had made my first visit. Never once did the dogs exhibit any symptom of uneasiness, and even when we returned to the chapel they frisked about as though they had been rabbit-hunting in a summer wood. The morning was quickening in the east when we had emerged from the front. Dr. Van Helsing had taken the key out of the hall door from the bunch and locked the door in orthodox fashion, putting the key into his pocket when he had done. So far, he said, our night has been eminently successful. No harm has come to us, as I feared might be, and yet we have ascertained how many boxes are missing. 
More than all do I rejoice that this, our first and perhaps our most difficult and dangerous step, has been accomplished without the bringing thereinto our most sweet Madame Minna, or troubling her waking or sleeping thoughts with sights and sounds and smells of horror which she might never forget. One lesson, too, that we have learned, if it be allowable to argue, ah, particulari, that the brute beasts which are to the Count's command are yet themselves not amenable to his spiritual power. For look, these rats would come to his gall, just as from his castle-top he summoned the wolves to your going and to that poor mother's cry. Though they come to him, they run pell-mell from so little dogs of my friend Arthur. We have many other matters before us, other dangers, other fears, and that monster... He has not used his power over the brute world for the only and last time tonight. So be it that he has gone elsewhere. Good. It has given us opportunity to cry check in some way in this chess game, which we play for the stake of human souls. And now let us go home. The dawn is close at hand, and we have reason to be content with our first night's work. It may be ordained that we have many nights and days to follow, if full of peril, but we must go on, and from no danger shall we shrink. The house was silent when we got back, save for some poor creature who was screaming away in one of the distant wards, and a low moaning sound from Renfield's room. The poor wretch was doubtless torturing himself after the manner of the insane, with needless thoughts of pain. I came tiptoe into our own room, and found Mina asleep, breathing so softly that I had to put my ear down to hear it. She looks paler than usual. I hope the meeting tonight has not upset her. I am truly thankful that she is to be left out of our future work, and even of our deliberations. It is too great a strain for a woman to bear. I did not think so at first, but I know better now. Therefore I am glad that it is settled. There may be things which would frighten her to hear and yet to conceal them from her might be worse than to tell her if once she suspected that there was any concealment. Henceforth our work is to be a sealed book to her, till at least such time as we can tell her that all this is finished, and the earth free from a monster of the netherworld. I dare say it will be difficult to begin to keep silence after such confidence as ours, but I must be resolute, and tomorrow I shall keep dark over tonight's doings and I shall refuse to speak of anything that has happened. I rest on the sofa so as not to disturb her. 1st of October, later. I suppose it was natural that we should have all overslept ourselves, for the day was a busy one and the night had no rest at all. Even Mina must have felt its exhaustion, for though I slept till the sun was high, I was awake before her and had to call two or three times before she awoke. Indeed, she was so sound asleep for a few seconds she did not recognise me, but looked at me with a sort of blank terror, as one looks who has been waked out of a bad dream. She complained a little of being tired, and I let her rest till later in the day. We now know of twenty-one boxes having been removed, and if it be that several were taken in any of these removals, we may be able to trace them all. Such will, however, immensely simplify our labour, and the sooner the matter is attended to, the better. I shall look up Thomas Snelling today. Dr. Seward's Diary, 1 October It was towards noon when I was awakened by the professor walking into my room. He was more jolly and cheerful than usual, and it is quite evident that last night's work had helped to take some of the brooding weight off his mind. After going over the adventure of the night, he suddenly said, "'Your patient interests me much.' May it be that with you I visit him this morning, or, if that you are too occupied, I can go alone if it may be. It is a new experience to me to find a lunatic who talk philosophy and reason so sound. I had some work to do which pressed, so I told him that if he would go alone I would be glad, as then I would not have to keep him waiting, so I called an attendant and gave him the necessary instructions. Before the professor left the room, I cautioned him against getting any false impression from my patient. But, he answered, I want him to talk of himself and of his delusion as to consuming live things. He said to Madame Mina, as I see in your diary of yesterday, that he had once had such a belief. Why do you smile, friend John? Excuse me, I said, but the answer is here. I laid my hand on the typewritten matter. 
When our sane and learned lunatic made that very statement of how he used to consume life, his mouth was actually nauseous with the flies and spiders which he had eaten just before Mrs. Harker entered the room. Van Helsing smiled in turn. Good, he said. Your memory is true, friend John. I should have remembered. And yet it is this very obliquity of thought and memory which makes mental diseases such a fascinating study. Perhaps I may gain more knowledge out of the folly of this madman than I shall from the teachings of the most wise. Who knows? I went on with my work, and before long was through that in hand. It seemed that the time had been very short indeed, but there was Van Helsing back in the study. Do I interrupt? he asked politely as he stood at the door. Not at all, I answered. Come in, my work is finished and I am free. I can go with you now if you like. It is needless. I have seen him. Well? I fear that he does not appraise me at much. Our interview was short. When I entered his room, he was sitting on a stool in the center, with his elbows on his knees, and his face was the picture of sullen discontent. I spoke to him as cheerfully as I could, and with such a measure of respect as I could assume, he made no reply, whatever. Don't you know me? I asked. His answer was not reassuring. I know you well enough. You are the old fool Van Helsing. I wish you would take yourself and your idiotic brain theories somewhere else. Damn all the thick-headed Dutchmen. Not a word more would he say, but sat in his implacable sullenness as indifferent to me as though I had not been in the room at all. Thus departed, for this time, my chance of much learning from this so clever lunatic. So I shall go, if I may, and cheer myself with a few happy words with the sweet soul, Madame Mina. Friend John, it does rejoice me, unspeakable, that she is no more to be pained, no more to be worried with our terrible things. Though we shall miss her help, it is better so. I agree with you with all my heart, I answered earnestly, for I did not want him to weaken in this matter. Mrs. Harker is better out of it. Things are quite bad enough for us, all men of the world, and who have been in many tight places in our time, but it is no place for a woman, and if she had remained in touch with the affair, it would in time infallibly have wrecked her. So Van Helsing has gone to confer with Mrs. Harker, and Harker, Quincy, and Art are all out following up the clues as to the earth boxes. I shall finish my round of work, and we shall meet tonight. Mina Harker's Journal 1st October It is strange to me to be kept in the dark as I am today, after Jonathan's full confidence for so many years, to see him manifestly avoid certain matters, and those the most vital of all. This morning I slept late after the fatigues of yesterday, and though Jonathan was late too, he was the earlier. He spoke to me before he went out, never more sweetly or tenderly, but he never mentioned a word of what had happened in the visit to the Count's house, and yet he must have known how terribly anxious I was. Poor dear fellow! I suppose it must have distressed him even more than it did me. They all agreed that it was best that I should not be drawn further into this awful work, and I acquiesced. But to think that he keeps anything from me! Now I am crying like a silly fool, when I know it comes from my husband's great love, and from the good, good wishes of those other strong men." That has done me good. Well, some day Jonathan will tell me all. And lest it should ever be that he should think for a moment that I kept anything from him, I still keep my journal as usual. Then, if he has feared of my trust, I shall show it to him, with every thought of my heart put down for his dear eyes to read. I feel strangely sad and low-spirited to-day. I suppose it is the reaction from the terrible excitement. Last night I went to bed when the men had gone, simply because they told me to. I didn't feel sleepy, and I did feel full of devouring anxiety. I kept thinking over everything that has been ever since Jonathan came to see me in London, and it all seems like a horrible tragedy, with fate pressing on relentlessly to some destined end. Everything that one does seems, no matter how right it may be, to bring on the very thing which is most to be deplored. If I hadn't gone to Whitby, perhaps poor dear Lucy would be with us now. She hadn't taken to visiting the churchyard till I came, and if she hadn't come there in the daytime with me she wouldn't have walked in her sleep, and if she hadn't gone there at night in her sleep the monster couldn't have destroyed her as he did. 
Oh, why did I ever go to Whitby? There now, crying again. I wonder what has come over me to-day. I must hide it from Jonathan, for if he knew that I had been crying twice in one morning, I, who never cried on my own account, and whom he has never caused to shed a tear, the poor dear fellow would fret his heart out. I shall put a bold face on, and if I do feel weepy, he shall never see it. I suppose it is just one of the lessons that we poor women have to learn. I can't quite remember how I fell asleep last night. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs, and a lot of queer sounds, like praying on a very tumultuous scale, from Mr. Renfield's room, which is somewhere under this. And then there was silence over everything, silence so profound that it startled me, and I got up and looked out of the window. All was dark and silent, the black shadows thrown by the moonlight seeming full of a silent mystery of their own. Not a thing seemed to be stirring, but all to be grim and fixed as death or fate, so that a thin streak of white mist that crept with almost imperceptible slowness across the grass towards the house seemed to have a sentience and a vitality of its own. I think that the digression of my thoughts must have done me good, for when I got back to bed I found a lethargy creeping over me. I lay a while, but could not quite sleep, so I got out and looked out of the window again. The mist was spreading, and was now close up to the house, so that I could see it lying thick against the wall, as though it was stealing up to the windows. The poor man was more loud than ever, and though I could not distinguish a word he said, I could in some way recognize in his tone some passionate entreaty on his part. Then there was the sound of a struggle, and I knew that the attendants were dealing with him. I was so frightened that I crept into bed, and pulled the clothes over my head, putting my fingers in my ears. I was not then a bit sleepy, at least so I thought, but I must have fallen asleep, for except dreams I do not remember anything until the morning when Jonathan woke me. I think that it took me an effort and a little time to realize where I was, and that it was Jonathan who was bending over me. My dream was very peculiar, and was almost typical of the way that waking thoughts become merged in, or continued in, dreams. I thought that I was asleep, and waiting for Jonathan to come back. I was very anxious about him, and I was powerless to act. My feet and my hands and my brain were weighted, so that nothing could proceed at the usual pace. And so I slept uneasily, and thought. Then it began to dawn upon me that the air was heavy and dark and cold. I put back the clothes from my face, and found to my surprise that it was dim all around. The gaslight which I had left lit for Jonathan, but turned down, came only like a tiny red spark through the fog, which had evidently grown thicker, and poured into the room. Then it occurred to me that I had shut the window before I had come to bed. I would have got out to make certain on the point, but some leaden lethargy seemed to chain my limbs and even my will. I lay still and endured, that was all. I closed my eyes, but could see still through my eyelids. It is wonderful what tricks our dreams play us, and how conveniently we can imagine. The mist grew thicker and thicker, and I could see now how it came in, for I could see it like smoke, or with the white energy of boiling water pouring in, not through the window, but through the joinings of the door. It got thicker and thicker, till it seemed as if it became concentrated into a sort of pillar of cloud in the room, through the top of which I could see the light of the gas shining like a red eye. Things began to whirl through my brain just as the cloudy column was now whirling in the room, and through it all came the scriptural words, a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. Was it indeed such spiritual guidance that was coming to me in my sleep? But the pillar was composed of both the day and the night guiding, for the fire was in the red eye, which at the thought got a new fascination for me, till as I looked the fire divided, and seemed to shine on me through the fog like two red eyes, such as Lucy told me of in her momentary mental wandering, when on the cliff the dying sunlight struck the windows of St. Mary's Church. Suddenly the horror burst upon me that it was thus that Jonathan had seen those awful women growing into reality through the whirling mist in the moonlight, and in my dream I must have fainted, for all became black darkness. The last conscious effort which imagination made was to show me a livid white face bending over me out of the mist. I must be careful of such dreams, for they would unseat one's reason if there were too much of them. I would get Dr. Van Helsing or Dr. Seward to prescribe something for me which would make me sleep, only that I fear to alarm them. 
such a dream at the present time would become woven into their fears for me. To-night I shall strive hard to sleep naturally. If I do not, I shall to-morrow night get them to give me a dose of chloral that cannot hurt me for once, and it will give me a good night's sleep. Last night tired me more than if I had not slept at all. 2nd October, 10 p.m. Last night I slept but did not dream. I must have slept soundly, for I was not waked by Jonathan coming to bed, but the sleep has not refreshed me, for to-day I feel terribly weak and spiritless. I spent all yesterday trying to read, or lying down dozing. In the afternoon Mr. Renfield asked if he might see me. Poor man! He was very gentle, and when I came away he kissed my hand and bade God bless me. Some way it affected me much. I am crying when I think of him. This is a new weakness of which I must be careful. Jonathan would be miserable if he knew I had been crying. He and the others were out till dinner-time, and they all came in tired. I did what I could to brighten them up, and I suppose that the effort did me good, for I forgot how tired I was. After dinner they sent me to bed, and all went off to smoke together, as they said, but I knew that they wanted to tell each other of what had occurred to each during the day. I could see from Jonathan's manner that he had something important to communicate. I was not so sleepy as I should have been, so before they went I asked Dr. Seward to give me a little opiate of some kind, as I had not slept well the night before. He very kindly made me up a sleeping draught, which he gave to me, telling me that it would do me no harm, as it was very mild. I have taken it, and am waiting for sleep, which still keeps aloof. I hope I have not done wrong, for as sleep begins to flirt with me, a new fear comes, that I may have been foolish in thus depriving myself of the power of waking. I might want it. Here comes sleep. Good night. Yes, yes, I know, I know. It's easy to accept that the guys are making a mistake because of their prejudices against women. It is harder to excuse Mina's journal entry and her complete lack of awareness in this chapter. Now, if we go back to Jonathan's narrative, when they are in the chapel at Carfax Abbey, he talks about feeling that they're being watched, that there's a presence there, and as soon as the dogs run in, that feeling is lifted. If we make the assumption that that's Dracula that he's feeling, who is in fact hiding in the shadows, and then Dracula leaves, then we have a pretty good idea of what is going on with Mina. Now we know that Dracula has some sort of communion with Renfield, so we know that he can have an effect on people from a great distance, from a near distance, from any distance. It is therefore reasonable to assume even though we know what assuming does, it's reasonable to assume that Dracula has his hooks in Mina in more ways than one, whether it's helping her forget that she actually knows facts about these things or not. Somehow he's controlling her. And I think one of the most prescient things that Mina says in this particular diary entry, everything that one does seems, no matter how right it may be, to bring on the very thing which is most to be deplored. And if that doesn't sum up this whole book, <laughs> I don't know what does. And then, of course, there's the other problem, which is an enormous and egregious error and oversight on the part of Van Helsing. When he was arming the men with crucifixes, with host, with all of this stuff, what did he give Mina? Now, the only thing I can think, and I'm sure you guys will post other, other ideas in the in the comments at the craftlet.com site. But the, the thing that comes to my mind is Lucy was unmarried and needed a little extra protection. And of course, by the, guy, by the time the guys showed up, she was already quite wasted by, uh, by Dracula. Mina is married. She's smart. She's in Seward's asylum. I mean, it's a pretty safe building. And, um, and perhaps it's the married thing that makes them overlook the fact that she's beautiful and therefore might be attractive to somebody like Dracula. You know, maybe it just never crosses their mind that this old married woman ha, 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 could, be, uh, 
could be, you know, someone that, that Dracula was going to set his sights on. I'm not entirely sure, but it is interesting, and it is actually pointed out, too, in the annotated version I was reading, that while Lucy initially, her, her initial encounter with Dracula made her look all rosy-cheeked and healthy and alive which is interesting. That was just, you know, the first the first one. Here with Mina, she's coming away, she's feeling guilty, she can't quite figure out what was going on. Jonathan even comments on her looking pale. Um, maybe it's because she's married and feeling guilty about what happened. Now, Bram Stoker is not giving us the details, but once again, we're starting to tap into the sexual side of Dracula, which is there. It's not the main thing, but it is there. And it is certainly going to become more complicated as the book goes on when we're dealing with married Mina, uh, no longer Mina Murray, but Mina Harker, who seems to be getting visited by Dracula. So, good stuff. Uh, there are pictures of skeleton keys on the website and pictures of hobnail boots. Um, hobnail boots are kind of interesting looking and, and you should take a look. It's when you think of Frankenstein, that's what I think of with hobnail boots. Uh, skeleton keys, I actually am old enough to have encountered skeleton keys. My great grandparents used to live down the street from me and they had a little craftsman cottage bungalow house um, actually the kind of house that you'll see in Stephanie Talent's uh, book that's coming up from Cooperative Press, the California Revival book. It, it was an, an older house. It had old locks and it had a skeleton key. And, you know, these locks had such simple keys. I don't even know how many bolts it had. Maybe one, actually, when I'm thinking about the key. Oh, no, I think, I think there's had two. The skeleton key was constructed in such a way that it could open any lock. And you had different varieties of skeleton keys, a one tumbler, a two tumbler, a three tumbler, but they they were constructed so that they could uh, get you into anywhere. Obviously, you wouldn't want everybody having these keys, but they were around and, uh, and quite useful if you needed to go in and get, say, a lemon meringue pie out of your great-grandmother's house for her. <laughs> she made the best lemon meringue pie. All right, so with that, I am going to abandon you to the world you have spend another hour with me and uh, and I thank you for doing it and next week chapter 20 of Dracula there's only like 27 chapters so we're cruising towards the end guys have a great week I hope to be able to podcast and talk to you again at the end of this coming week and I hope you have a great one talk to you later bye please remember to support the people who support CraftLit visit Knit Circus online magazine offering three rings of knitting sewing and fun you can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And what would Madame Defarge knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlet family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com. Craftlet can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.